Well, it is good to see you this morning. We are going to kind of dust the pages uh, of our mind, uh, so to speak, off of um, our getting back into our First Peter series. So I'm going to invite you to turn in your Bibles, if you haven't already, uh, to the book of First Peter. Um, if you don't have a Bible, we, uh, there's a black Bible in the rack in, in front of your, uh, in the chair in front of you, and you can turn to page 1015 towards the back of your Bible. Again, we're going to be looking uh, just at two verses this morning, but we want to have all of our eyes into the text of Scripture so we see what Scripture is actually saying uh, and not just uh, what I'm saying. As we begin this morning, I want us to kind of in review as we try to kind of get our minds back in gear to uh, the book of First Peter. I uh, have a chart up on, on the overhead uh, that I want us to look at, kind of how the book of First Peter is laid out. Uh, it's really, it's laid out in three different sections. And uh, back around Thanksgiving time, if you remember uh, when we got that really big snow, uh, on Sunday, and there was about a third of, uh, of us that could make it that morning, uh, we finished up the first section of 1 Peter. And in, in chapter 1, verse 1, all the way to chapter 2, verse 10, where we left off, Peter is trying to focus our identity in who we are because of the gospel. What our identity is in light of the work of God that has brought new life to us. And, and in this section, he really focuses on our gospel identity. What the good news of the gospel has accomplished in us. Why we can have hope even when things seem hopeless. And of course, he's going to carry out this theme of, of the gospel's work in us uh, through the whole book. But in this first section, especially, he focuses in on here's what God has done for you. You may be an outcast in your society, where in your workplace, in your neighborhood, in all of those areas, but this is who God says you are, and this is the purpose that God has given you. Now we're going to start this morning uh, to look at this second section in the book of 1 Peter that talks about our identity as exiles. So because of the work of the gospel, chapter 1, verse 1, to chapter 2, uh, verse 10, now Peter transitions to, because of what Jesus has done for us, here is how we are to be living in society. This is to be our focus. And Peter calls us as Christians to live faithful during our time of exile, of, of sojourning in this world. And then we're going to eventually get to the third aspect of, of uh, the third section of 1 Peter, chapter 4, verse 12, to chapter 5, all the, the, to the end of the book, verse 14, where Peter talks about how do we as the church of God conduct ourselves and live with one another and in society in light of the last days that are upon us. 
So that's kind of an overview of where we've been, where we're going, and I want us this morning to read verses 11 and 12, follow along as I read these two verses that we are going to look at this morning. Peter writes, he says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Let's open with a word of prayer. Lord, as we come to your word, as we've just sung, would you show us Christ? Lord, the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf in his perfect life, his death, his resurrection for us, Lord, it accomplished something in us. It has made us new creatures. We've been born again. We've been born into a new family, into your family. And Lord, our spiritual identity and the, the, the cultural system of this world are at odds. And Lord, it's so crucial that we live in light of our spiritual identity as we navigate through this world. So Lord, as we start to look at this second section of, of the book of 1 Peter, would you speak to our hearts? Would you uh, convict us? Would you challenge us as to how we are living as sojourners and exiles in this world? In a world that does not know you, we who have the light of the glorious gospel that shines in our hearts, would we seek to be faithful in our living? We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Throughout the Bible, God's people have either faced exile, or exile-like situations. This is a common theme we read of through from Genesis to Revelation. Let me give you a few examples to kind of put what Peter's saying in perspective as he calls these Christians sojourners and exiles. Adam, all the way back in Genesis 3, you remember he, he, they forsook God's command, they, they, they took of the fruit God told them not to, They were exiled from God's presence in the Garden of Eden. From that moment on, God's people have always been in spiritual exile. We come just a few chapters later in Genesis to Noah. While Noah wasn't technically in exile, he lived as an exile in his community. Noah was one of the few individuals that walked with God. The world was exceedingly wicked and God was going to destroy the world with a flood. Noah found himself living as an outcast in his society. As he lived in obedience to God, he walked with God. 
You go a few chapters later in Genesis and you read about this guy named Abraham. And God told Abraham to leave everything and to go to a land that I will show you. He traveled as a sojourner, as a man without a country, awaiting the promises of God that he would give him a land. Read towards the end of Genesis of a guy by the name of Joseph. Remember the story of Joseph. His own family betrayed him. What happened? Joseph was carried away into slavery. He became an exile in the land of Egypt. However, God greatly used him in his exile in Egypt. The people of Israel, as as the nation multiplied in the book of Exodus, Israel, they were exiles in the land of Egypt, awaiting deliverance from the oppressive hand of Pharaoh. And God brought deliverance. And then God brought them into that new land that he promised Abraham. And what happened? They too were disobedient to God. They were sent out into captivity. And again, exile was a reality. So all through the Bible, God's people have faced exile. They have faced sojourning without a homeland or at least away from their homeland. The, the, very, the very climax of, uh, of, of the theme of exile in the Bible is, is Jesus himself. In fact, in John 1, John tells us that Jesus sojourned in this world. He left his heavenly home in order to, to live in this world among us. And as John 1.11 says, Jesus faced rejection as he sojourned among us. He himself was willing to take our sins upon himself, and he faced exile with God, Isaiah 53.8, as God turns his back on his own son as he carries our judgment. This theme is, 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 is all over the place in Scripture. And in chapter 2, verses 11 to 25, Peter develops the, what we talked about, our gospel identity, by explaining what it means for his readers to live out their Christianity in a world that places them in the outskirts of society. This world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. Probably a little bit of a more accurate way to sing that song because we are made to live on earth. It's going to be a new earth. It's going to be an earth without sin. This world system is not my home. I'm just a passing through. How do we live as God's people, if we're really going to be true to our spiritual identity, how do we navigate life in a world that is hostile to God? You see, we are to, to uh, follow Peter's instructions just as the Christians in the first century. So in verses 11 to 25, this next section of, of 1 Peter, we're only going to look at the first two verses this morning. 
Well, we're going to look at three main headings in verses 11 to 25. First of all, during our time of exile in this world, of sojourning in this world, we have to realize that we represent a greater country. If we are going to navigate through this world as faithful Christians, we have to realize, first of all, we represent a greater country. Secondly, we're going to look at next week in verses 13 to 17. If we're going to live as faithful exiles, we have to submit to a greater king. If we're representing a greater country, then we need to submit to the king of that country. Thirdly, in verses 18 to 25, if we're going to navigate through this world as faithful Christians, we have to endure as servants of God. That's who we're doing this all for. So we're going to see this morning and over these next weeks that we are not our own. Therefore, we are to live for someone greater than ourselves. Jesus didn't save us to live for self. He saved us from that. He's given us the privilege to live for someone greater than ourselves. So again, this morning, I want us to say it together before we look specifically at these two verses, our theme for the book of 1 Peter, we are called, let's read it together, to faithful perseverance and mission in light of our identity as the people of God. Nothing else is going to spur us to live for God outside of realizing where our identity lies. And that's what Peter wants to explain to us in this passage. So this morning we're looking at the fact that we are to represent a greater country. So listen, our motives in, in life, our goals in Christianity, our motivation does not reside in an earthly political agenda. I mean, this year is election year, right? Good old every four years. All we hear about on the news is the polls and the, the uh, debates and all those things. Listen, God's people, if we represent a greater country, our Christianity doesn't ebb and flow on what happens in this country. Not that we don't care, but our hope is not in any earthly leader. I mean, the worst person could get elected in 2020, and guess what? That does not change the fact that Jesus is king. Amen? Our motivation doesn't reside in political agenda. Our motivation, if we truly represent a greater country, it doesn't, resolve, uh, it doesn't revolve around our desire for, for honor and prestige and to look good and to be accepted. It's not about uh, gaining things materially. Rather, as chapter 1, verse 15 and 16 says, our desire is to display the holiness of God through Christ-like living. And as we're going to see in this text, if, if that is our desire and that is how we live, we are going to stand out in society. 
And sometimes it's going to get rather uncomfortable. I mean, I remember being, and I, I went to a Christian high school, and it would get rather uncomfortable in the locker rooms when you're telling people, hey, you know, let's not, let's not talk like that. Or in the workplace, when people would sometimes make dirty jokes and kind of look at me to see what my reaction would be. Or all of those things. It gets uncomfortable to live for God. But we're going to see that this is our motivation as Christians. So in verse 11 and 12, we represent a greater country. And verse 11 shows us that if we truly represent a greater country, there needs to be, uh, from these two verses, two realities that are true of our lives. First of all, we are to be marked by purity, verse 11. Now, the thing about the Christian life is uh, the fact that God does not give us commands apart from theological grounding. Or another way of saying it, God does not give us commands, just do this, do that, without a basis for doing it. And Peter, through the inspiration of God, gives us a basis for how we are to live. It's not just, hey, you need to just do this. Just do this because it's the right thing to do. Do this to just be a good person. Sometimes we can get caught up in the trap of parenting like that, can't we? You know what? Just be good. And then when they're not good, we, 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 we punish. And There's no grounding behind the commands. Well, the Bible's not like that. Sometimes we think the Bible's like that, but it's not. Peter has just spent the whole first section of his book, 1-1 to 2-10, telling us, the grounding for any life that is lived for God, it's because of what He is doing in us. And again, in verse 11, we see that we are to be marked by purity. The incentive here is who we are. We're to really understand who we are. Who are we, according to verse 11? First of all, it's that the text simply says, we're the beloved. A lot of times it's easy to read right past that word and not think about the, the, the implications of that. He says, beloved, this is how we are to live. The command in verse 11 is very apparent. It is um, abstain from the passions of the flesh. But the way that we are going to abstain from the passions of the flesh is not just to do more, try harder. It is to first of all have a grounding that we are a part of the beloved. There's kind of two aspects to this. Uh, first of all, that, that they are beloved by Peter. Peter's never met these Christians. He's writing a letter to them. He's more than likely never met them, but because of their common bond in Christ, these recipients were beloved by Peter. But not only that, but even greater, they're beloved by God. We are beloved by God. Again, this is a theme that runs through the Scriptures. In Psalm, verse, in Psalm chapter 60, 
There, uh, let me, I'm going to just read to you out loud a verse before, verse 5 there. David, or the psalmist writes, You have set up a banner for those who fear you, that they may flee to it from the bow, Selah, that your beloved ones may be delivered. Give salvation by your right hand and answer us. Psalm 108 verse 6 says, That your beloved ones may be delivered. Give salvation by your right hand and answer me. Psalm 127 and verse 2, It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. All throughout the scriptures, God talks about his people as being beloved, completely accepted and loved by him. When is the last time you've lived in in conscious reality that you are beloved by God? If there was ever someone who had an excuse not to love you, it would be God. Because God is completely perfect. Sometimes we treat God and we say, yeah, God loves me. That's kind of, yeah, big deal. That's like my mom telling me that, that, you know, I'm the most handsome or most beautiful person, child she's ever seen. It's like my mom's got to say that. Listen, God is completely perfect, completely holy, completely sovereign over all things, and he has providentially set his love on you. It was nothing of your own that could ever earn God's love. You see, our, our, our fuel to, 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 uh, to give us the purpose of abstaining from the passions of the flesh is we have a greater passion. That God has set his love on us and he's given us the privilege to love him back. And even when we love him back, how imperfectly we love him back, right? We're beloved. Not only that, but then he also addresses these Christians in a second way. And the Bible addresses us in a second way. It reminds us not only that we are beloved, but the scriptures remind us that we are sojourners and exiles. Going back to what we began with. If you remember in chapter 1 verse 1, Peter has already mentioned that these Christians are exiles. And then in verse 17, he, he says, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. In verse 17, he again brings up this theme and he said, or excuse me, in verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 12, or verse 11, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. So this is kind of the second foundation that we're living in light of as we follow the command that Peter gives us, that the scriptures give us. That we are aliens, that we are strangers and aliens. These terms don't, aren't meant to to bring a contrast. They're meant to be seen together. The sense is this. 
The, what Peter's trying to get across to them is this is your earthly home, but it isn't your true home. Or another way of saying it is, hey, remember, you live here, but don't get too comfortable. You are a stranger and an exile. In other words, you are away from your country and you are biding your time. You are traversing a world that is not your home. That's what Peter is trying to remind us of. Again, God's people have always been sojourners and exiles. You can read Genesis 23, 4. You can read Psalm 39, 12, which uh, Roger read this morning. You can read Ephesians 2, 19, Hebrews eleven thirteen, 13, Exodus 2, 22. All of these passages talk about the fact that God's people have always been completely dependent on Him, looking to Him for their true home, not looking to the things we see here and now. You see, if I'm being forgetful that this world is not, this world system is not my true home, then man, I'm really going to struggle obeying what verse 11 says, to abstain from the passions of the flesh. Why? Because I'm living for the flesh. I'm living for what I can see. Not for that which is eternal. That which chapter 1, Peter has said over and over again, the inheritance that awaits God's people cannot be destroyed. It is, it is, it is kept in heaven for us. So that leads us to not only being marked by purity by remembering who we are, but following through on what Peter says to us because of our passion, the command in verse 11, again, is abstain from the passions of the flesh which war against your soul. So in other words, what, what Peter's telling us this morning is that if we are going to live as exiles in this world, we have to be living for a greater passion. In other words, our new passion outshines our old passion. We are now the beloved of God. We have a new citizenship that is in heaven, not simply in the things of this earth. So therefore, let's live like that. Peter's already talked about some of these passions of the flesh. If you look at chapter 1 and verse 14, he says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Now, when was the time of their former ignorance? He's talking about don't live after the passions of somebody that doesn't know Jesus as their Savior. That was your former life, but it's not what you're called to right now. And then we, if you also look ahead at chapter 4 and verse 2, Peter says, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh. That's as long as we're here on this earth. To live no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. So the will of God 
and the passions of the flesh are, are opposites. They're at war with one another. He even mentions what some of these are. It says in verse 3 of chapter 4, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. They talk bad about you. So the passions of the flesh are those things that are, are indulgences of our flesh that are completely opposed to God or His will. And Paul sa- or Peter says, we are not of this world system any longer, so do not give in to these things. Abstain from them. In other words, have nothing to do with them. In fact, Galatians 5.24 tells us those who belong to Christ Jesus, they've crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Of course, we're not perfect. And, and, and as we're going to see in the, in, at the end of verse 11, there is a battle that wages war. And we struggle with these former passions. But we are crucifying these, the flesh with its passions and desires as we arm ourselves with the reality that we now live for a different purpose than what, than what we once did. We have been made spiritually alive. Are you living for a greater passion this morning? It's amazing when when you are doing anything to just say by mere willpower, I'm going to change that, I'm going to stop that. It, it maybe lasts for a few days, but it never lasts. I mean, the, it, you experience that if you're doing a new exercise plan, if you are starting a diet. You know, we've talked about 2020 resolutions and how you know, Matt gave us statistics about those. You know when a lot of those habits do start really working in the long term? It's when the passion for change becomes greater for the passion of giving in to something. So if the doctor tells you you're going to die in a month if you don't change your diet, the passion for life is what ultimately is going to make you say no to that really good McDouble But it's not until the passion for life is greater than the passion for the McDouble that we are going to follow the right passion. And you see, in the spiritual life, we are so caught up with just emptily, no, that's not even a word, is it? In an empty way, we are just trying to say, yeah, I'm going to follow God. And there's no understanding of the things like we talked about, that man, the reason we follow God is because he set his love on us. We're beloved. I mean, chap- all the way from chapter 1, verse 1, to chapter 2, verse 10 that we've read so far, man, God has sovereignly, he, he has foreknown us from eternity past. He, he set his love on us in a covenant relationship 
before we were ever born. Man, God has brought us from death to life. He's given us an inheritance that we live for. And not only is our inheritance being preserved for us, but in chapter 1 it says, we ourselves are even being preserved. And we're awaiting that time when Jesus comes back and we share in his glory. God has given us this context for living for him. It's to produce a greater passion in us than the passions that once defined us. That is where victory over sin comes. You see, we're to live for a greater passion, but not only that, we are to resist giving in to temptation. The end of verse 11 says, these passions of the flesh wage war against our souls. These sins are seeking to destroy the work that God has done. Were it not for God's preserving hand, uh, we would all face destruction. You see, there's a battle for our souls. These passions wage war against our souls. It's interesting that two other times uh, before we get to uh, chapter 2, verse 11, that we see this word soul. The first one is is chapter 1, verse 9. It talks about our final salvation. It says that one day we are going to be obtaining the outcome of your faith, which is the salvation of your souls. The completed work of God's salvation, the completion, the saving work of our souls from start to finish. We also see this word used again in chapter 1, verse 22. It says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. This is talking about a purification in our acceptance of the gospel. We were obedient to the truth and that we heard the truth, we responded to it in repentance and faith. So what we really see in verse 9 and in verse 22 is we see the work of God in our souls from start to finish. Now in between start to finish, guess what? There's a war going on. The passions of the flesh are waging war against our soul. And man, we are so often, myself included, so flippant with the war that's going on for our soul. We're flippant with it when we justify watching television programs on Netflix and on, on, man, there's so many streaming services nowadays, watching shows we know aren't appropriate, but we easily justify them because they have a good storyline. The things we click on on a computer... The, the, the associations, the things that we are doing with, with coworkers and friends that we know do not exemplify the name of Christ. The, the things we, we play with, that we, we flirt with, that is like what the Bible says, it's playing with fire in a man's bosom, in their lap. 
rather than realizing that there is a war, we have, uh, many of us, all of us in some regards, have fallen asleep. And Satan thrives on that. In fact, at chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, Peter says to be watchful because your adversary, the devil, is like a roaring lion seeking whom he is going to devour, kill. Do you realize that there is a war for your soul this morning? A spiritual battle is at work between God's initial work of salvation in us to the time that that salvation is complete when Jesus returns. I like what one individual says. He says, The deceitful desires of our flesh seek to overwhelm and undermine the devotion of our souls to a life of holiness. You see, we are never going to live as representatives of a greater country if we are not mindful of the war that's taking place. We just have had news uh, this past week, the past the, of 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 our embassy in Iran and of uh, Americans that that have gotten killed uh, in Iran and and all of these things, they were representing another country in warlike conditions. Folks, we are representing a greater country in the midst of a battle. It's not a physical battle. It's not a battle with missiles and, and ammunition. But it is a spiritual battle. It's what the Bible says are the fiery darts of the wicked one. Are we being mindful of that? Are we guarding ourselves? Are we seeking to have accountability amongst other believers knowing that left to ourselves, none of us are safe? It's one of the whole purposes of church membership is accountability and and having individuals that are able to to lovingly walk with us and, and yes, even sometimes confront us when we are not living for the Lord. Those are all actions done in love because of the war that is being waged against our very souls. You see, the price to pay is much greater than any physical battle. If America was to be defeated, heaven forbid, by a foreign power, we would lose our earthly freedom as a country. Heaven forbid that ever happen, but dare I say, if we lose the battle for our souls if we lose the spiritual freedom that is found in Christ, that is a much worse loss. You know why? Because there are faithful believers all across this globe. God's church is thriving in countries where there is no political freedom. We're going to even talk about this later in chapter 2. The freedom that is found in Christ is so much greater than any other freedom that could be found. How are we waging war 
How are we being purposeful and living carefully in the midst of this war? So if we represent a greater country, we are first of all to be marked by purity. But secondly, we find in verse 12 that we have a calling of bringing glory to God as representatives of this greater country. Now, saying bring glory to God can sometimes be kind of just broad. How do we bring glory to God? Well, verse 12 provides the answer to that question. Verse 12 talks about honorable conduct. Now, again, this isn't just moralism, uh, just be good, because you, you cannot be a Christian and yet be a moral person. We're t- Peter's talking about something deeper than this. Look at, look at what it says. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Now, Peter's mentioned the, our conduct or our way of life already in this book, in chapter 1 and verse 15. He says, as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Same word, verse 18. It says, knowing you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold. That word ways is your feudal conduct, your feudal way of life. So we once lived for futility, for nothingness, Now we are called to live as God's people, to live and mirror who God is. God is holy. We are to live holy. We are to be honorable in our conduct. That word honorable could also be translated good. In fact, later in verse 12, uh, the same word is used, that they may see your good or your honorable deeds. So this is more than just living as a good person. This is what Peter's talking about, is living as a representative of the God that saved you. That we are to be above reproach. Not simply to be good citizens here in the United States of America, or if you were living in the first century when Peter wrote this, not just to be good Roman citizens, but to be good citizens of a heavenly kingdom. You see, we are living as a nation amongst nations. In fact, verse 12 says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. It's interesting that Peter's uh, more than likely writing mainly to Gentiles, not to Jewish people. But again, because Jew and Gentile are now together as one, as God's one people, anyone that is now connected to Christ and, and, and his saving work for them is considered... A Jew is considered God's people. Anyone outside of Christ is considered a Gentile. Another way to translate that is nations. And you know what chapter 2, verse 9, Peter's told us? That we are a holy nation. Same word we find in verse 12 of Gentiles. So you see, we are living as a 
heavenly people as, a, as citizens of a greater kingdom amidst the pagan nations. Are we exemplifying Christ in the midst of those that are without Christ? Knowing that we are given a calling, that we are representing Jesus. Man, if I go to Walmart, I mean, believe it or not, if we go to Walmart, even Walmart, even on a Sunday afternoon after church, that's the worst. Did you know you're representing Jesus in Walmart? Did you know that you're representing Jesus? Here's a really scary one at the red light. I mean, I, I, I remember honking before and then thinking, oh man, I got a Covington Baptist Church sticker on the back of my car. <laughs> We're representing Jesus everywhere we go. Did you know, Dad, you're representing Jesus in your home to your kids? Even, and I speak from personal experience right now, when you're really tired because you have an infant in the house, we're representing Jesus, Mom, to our kids. Even when sometimes those, those weary hours of, uh, of taking care of kids can be so exhausting because it feels like, man, I need civilization. I'm in, within these four walls with these kids. Man, that's who God has called you to represent Jesus to. Or if you're in the workplace, you're representing Jesus. Wherever you go, you're representing Christ. Are we, are, are we living in an honorable way that represents God well? You see, when we truly see the purpose behind our honorable conduct, it presents in our hearts purposeful living. I'm no longer going to work just to clock in and make a paycheck and, and even to get some good deals. Uh, or, or to, to do some, some good things for, for my workplace. I mean, all of that points back to God's glory and it re represents Christ well, but, but it's, be, it's beyond the immediate things. The text gives us what the purpose is. It says, so that. So living honorably among the pagans, among the Gentiles, so to speak, it's more than so that we can just kind of be proud and say, boy, I don't do that. I don't dress like that. I don't talk like that. I don't do those things on the weekends. No, that's not the purpose is to somehow be, be self-righteous. The purpose here in verse 12 is so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now, if you're living according to a lot of today's thinking... Peter just kind of shot himself in the foot. He's saying, live honorably so that when bad things happen, you're going to represent God well. I mean, today's thinking is more, let's splice, let's splice up Christianity. Man, so if you live well, boy, God is just going to bless you. He's going to give you more. He's just going to make your life easy. Uh, Peter doesn't say that. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. 
You see, purposeful living, it involves three things, and, and we're going to close with these three things. Purposeful living means that you are living for God despite opposition. There will be individuals that speak against you as evildoers. Why were they being slandered? Were they being slandered because they were mean people? Peter, we're going to look at how Peter says later, hey, if you're going to suffer, don't suffer because you deserve it. <laughs> suffer for, do, for serving God. It's no benefit if you're suffering because, man, you really deserved it. These people are not being slandered against simply because their personalities aren't real great or they're sloughing off at their jobs or they don't have a lot of money these people are being slandered against because of their identification with Jesus. And man, that's where it's tempting to say, if this is what it means to serve God, I'm out. Are we going to have the spiritual stamina to say it is worth suffering for Jesus? It's, uh, listen, as I, as I mentioned this, just speaking of the cultural setting in the first century, of course, Rome and the Roman citizens, they, there was lots of religions. And, and you could just add, as Rome's territory expanded, let's just add more religions to the mix, as long as you don't deny one. But as this person explains, he says, to the outsider, this Jesus movement appeared to undermine the sacred and central values of society, pulling formerly good and reliable people into a subversive cult. So these people were like, man, I used to hang out with that guy, and then he professes this Jesus, and he's a part of this group that now says that Jesus is the only way. Okay, it's okay to say Jesus is a way, but not the only way. What is this cult? And, and, and as time goes on in history, uh, Christianity starts to set itself apart more and more from society until physical persecution starts. If the reason is, is because rather than just accepting all religions, it was, no, Jesus is the only way, like Scripture says. There was opposition these Christians, and maybe you find yourself being spoken against as evildoers. I mean, being an evildoer and, and living among the Gentiles honorable are two completely different things. So what Peter's saying is you can still be accused of doing the wrong thing when you're doing the right thing. How many of you have ever tried to, have ever been serving the Lord You've been invested in someone's life. And you get accused for doing the very loving thing that Scripture tells you to do. Or you're, you're lovingly guiding your children or a relative or a neighbor. And then you are painted out to be the bad guy. That hurts. But it is well worth it. Because as we will see, Jesus himself was maligned. So if we're going to live purposefully, expect opposition. But the second aspect of purposeful living 
is that individuals will see your good deeds. So even though those same individuals may revile you as evildoers, there is deep down a recognition of your good deeds. And while some of those individuals that malign and accuse and that are uh, completely against the gospel, while they may never confess and look to Christ, there are those silent ones that are watching and see your good deeds. And as we're going to see, we'll bring them to God. Do we realize people are watching? Again, parent, do you realize children are watching? Grandparent, do you realize your children and grandchildren, they are watching? Uh, spouse, do you realize your, your spouse is watching? Your neighbor, your coworker, the person that seems to be totally aloof to you may very well be watching. Sometimes it's scary to realize the people that know us that many times we don't know, and that makes you think, wow, I didn't even know I knew them. What do they know about me? People are watching. And the ultimate purpose of our living as representatives of a greater country is found in this last phrase in verse 12. Not only that they may see your good deeds, but it goes further than that, and glorify God on the day of visitation. So in other words, God sovereignly uses us to bring people to himself. The very ones that are maligning these Christians through the example of God's people, and not just the example, but through knowing what they believe they too see the futility of this world system and they turn to Jesus. That they would glorify God on the day of visitation. It's interesting that this day of visitation, it has kind of parallel implications. For instance, in Isaiah chapter 10, verse 3, we don't have time to turn there. You can look there on your own. There's the negative implication that the day of visitation is a day of God's judgment and wrath when he comes again. But there's also a positive aspect to this, that the day of visitation in a passage like uh, Luke 19.44, Jesus refers to, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, would you not have accepted me when I had, on your day of visitation, when I had come to you, it was supposed to be a day of salvation and acceptance, but through their rejection, it was a day of judgment. So we see here that depending on someone's acceptance or rejection of Jesus, the day of visitation is either a day of great rejoicing or a day of great judgment. Peter in chapter 1, verses 5, 7, uh, verse 13, has already told the read, his readers, he's already told us, man, if you are in Christ, you look forward to that day. Now let us here in our immediate passage live like God's 
people. Let us be witnesses for him so that others can look forward to that day as well. And that day will not be a day of judgment, but a day of blessing. This runs parallel as we close with Matthew 5, 14 to 16. What does Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works. And what's the ultimate purpose? Give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Peter was here when Jesus preached, was, was there when, when Jesus preached this sermon. And I think P- Jesus' words are ringing in Peter's ears as he's encouraging these struggling Christians. And because we are recipients of this message as well, our ears ring of Jesus' message. Let's live in light of who we are. We're beloved. But in the midst of being beloved, it's going to be difficult because we're also sojourners and exiles. How are we going to conduct our days? How are we going to represent the greater country for which we are a part of? As we close, let's say our, our main purpose theme together of the book. We are called to faithful perseverance and mission in light of our identity as the people of God. Let's pray.